Our text for this Lord's Day is Mark chapter 12, the first 12 verses. Tyranny is the abuse of authority. It is to go beyond the God-ordained limitations that are placed upon authority. For absolute authority resides only with God. Therefore, all lawful authority exercised by man in whatever sphere is not absolute, but rather limited, derived, and delegated authority. That is why submission in the home, in the church, or in the state is always submission in the Lord. That is a submission that is in accordance with the revealed will of God. Dear ones, our conscience belongs not to any man, but to God alone. For God alone is Lord of the conscience. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23 states very clearly, Ye are bought with a price, be, ye, be not ye the servants of men. Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. That is, do not submit your conscience unto men ultimately or absolutely, but unto God alone in that absolute sense. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, likewise teaches, and remember, this was an apostle who was speaking, and he says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. By faith in the apostles? Is that how they stood? No, faith in God. Faith in God. By that faith you stand. But he says very clearly, we don't have dominion over your faith. We don't have dominion over your conscience. Only God does. Beloved, it is as critical to God that those exercising lawful authority not abuse it, as it is that those under lawful authority submit to it in the Lord. We can't so escalate the idea of submission that we totally forget the idea of not abusing authority. They are both equally important. Abuse of authority, dear ones, is the reason for which the Lord in the parable, which we will look at today, destroyed the temple and Jerusalem, and for which the Lord has judged and will judge the church. Abuse of authority. The Lord, dear ones, hates tyranny, and particularly tyranny within His church, as we shall see today. For tyranny usurps his rightful place as the only head of the church. 
to abuse Christ's authority within the church, even when it is intended to promote some perceived good. As for example, in many churches, it is a perceived good to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And people and ministers will use that authority. Elders will use that authority to bring that particular celebration into the church. But even with the good intent that might be there, it is an abuse of God's authority if the Lord has not authorized it within the Holy Scriptures. And it is in effect, dear ones, to usurp and to unseat Christ from his throne. So likewise, must we carefully ourselves, dear ones, evaluate all that we do within Christ's church, lest we fall into the tyranny and the judgment that befell the priests and the Levitical ministers of the Jewish church. The main points from our text in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, are the following. Number one, a lawful authority delegated in Mark 12.1. Number two, lawful authority abused in Mark chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. And the third main point, abused authority judged. Mark chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. Our first main point then, lawful authority delegated. Look with me at Mark 12.1. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine vat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. The parable of the wicked and tyrannical tenants here, or husbandmen, is also found in two parallel accounts, Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, and Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. It's one of the few parables that you'll find that is mentioned in all three of these Gospels. This parable is given by the Lord just three days before he himself was to be crucified. He was to be unlawfully judged by the ecclesiastical leaders within Israel. They were to, in the most heinous way, abuse their authority in sen sentencing the sinless Son of God to die the death. As a parable... It's interesting that it not only depicts events that are past and present, but this is, this is one of those parables that also predicts things that are to come as well. This parable is intimately connected with the subject matter 
just previously covered at the end of Mark chapter 11. There you will recall that from the sermon last Lord's Day that the chief priests and the scribes who were representatives of the Jewish church at that time had sought to ensnare Christ by asking him in Mark 11:28, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? You remember on the first day of the week that the Lord had ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem and he had received the shouts from the people who proclaimed that he was the messianic king. On the second day of this very notable week, the Lord had driven out of the temple the money changers, overturned their tables, had, had chased out of the temple those who sold and who bought and made merchandise of the temple. Jesus called it his house. <clears throat> Later on that same day, the Lord continued his ministry by teaching and performing miracles, healing the sick. So now on the third day of the week, the chief priests and the scribes seek to entrap the Lord by asking him which ecclesiastical court of the Jews had ordained or commissioned him. Now, they knew that none had, so obviously it was a, a way of entrapping him. Now, since they were no match to Christ in debating him or in performing miracles like him, they resorted to seeking to discredit him through this means. They tried to discredit him by pointing out to the people he does not have any ordinary commissioning from our church courts. Well, the Lord silenced them again and demonstrated that his calling was like that of John the Baptist immediately and extraordinarily given from God above. In fact, if they, Jesus said, if they were to accept John's commissioning, John's ordination to fulfill the ministry that God had given to him, they would also accept his because it was John who was the human agent that God used to commission Christ. It was John who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Well, now in Mark chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 1 through 12, Christ continues with that same theme of ecclesiastical authority and speaks against the abuse of authority by the very ones who self-righteously judged his authority. This parable, as I said, is, is spoken very specifically against the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people for, in, 
Look at verse 12 of Mark chapter 12. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. So whoever that they are in that particular verse, they're distinguished from the people at large. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 21, verses 45 and 46, there's no doubt as to who that they are. For it says, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. If you turn to Matthew chapter 21, you will see that this is obviously the case, that this parable was directed against the chief priests, against the ecclesiastical leaders of that time. For when the Lord ends his discussion with regard to the authority of John, and if they would have recognized his authority, they would recognize his own authority. Verse 28 of Matthew 21 says, uh, immediately continues and says, But what think ye? In other words, this is all the same discussion. What think ye? He relates there a very brief parable that's not covered in Mark chapter 12, but nevertheless is directed against these same leaders. And then when he comes to verse 33 of Matthew 21, he says, hear another parable. In other words, there's really no break in continuity between these various verses as to who the Lord is directing. Very specifically, he continues to address the issue of authority against these religious leaders. I think it's very important that we understand that connection in order to understand the nature and the meaning of the parable that we are looking at today. That connection of authority. And in the case of these leaders, the abuse of authority. Well, let us now consider the parable in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We need to ask uh, some questions about the key characters represented in the first verse of this parable. First of all, who is the man who planted the vineyard? A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine vat and built a tower and, and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Who is this man who planted the vineyard? Well, in the parable, this is God who planted and in fact owns the vineyard. We'll talk about in just a moment what that vineyard is. But it is God who planted and owns the vineyard. He it is, dear ones, that has absolute authority over the vineyard. Second question, who are the husbandmen or farmers to whom the owner lets or rents out the vineyard? 
Well, these are the priests and the Levitical ministers or leaders to whom the authority was lawfully delegated to care for the vineyard. Back in the Old Testament, we see that God did delegate authority to the priests, to the Levitical ministers at that time. Thirdly, then, who or what is the vineyard that was delegated by God to the priests and the Levitical leaders that was given to them in order that they might care for, exercise proper authority over? Well, I submit to you that the vineyard is the kingdom of God or the church of God in the Old Testament, whom the Lord established by means of his covenant of grace and settled by means of the ministry and outward ordinances that were given to Moses. The divine interpretation of the vineyard is actually given to us. It's no secret. When we look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 43... I'm going to read Mark 12:9, then I'm going to jump over to Matthew 21:43. Mark 12:9 says, Jesus speaking here, "What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others." Matthew 21:43 says, "Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Thus the vineyard, dear ones, <clears throat> represents the kingdom of God. It represents the church of God whom the Lord establishes, feeds, and rules by his ordained ministers. And yet I would have you note that this vineyard cannot be limited to only the Jewish church. The vineyard is not only or merely the Jewish church, but also includes the Christian church as well. For according to Matthew 21.43, the vineyard is taken away from the Jewish ministers and is given to Christian ministers to oversee. Here, I believe, is a very significant point that we see the essential continuity of God's kingdom from the Old Testament church to the New Testament church. Certainly, the outward administration of the church of God has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament as illustrated by the change of ministers or husbandmen in Mark 12.9. God removes those husbandmen and, and gives the vineyard to new husbandmen. But the essential unity of the church or kingdom of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament has not changed, for it is in fact the same vineyard that is given to the new husbandmen or ministers. 
which again raises, I believe, a point that uh, we can certainly enunciate at this point with regard to the issue of our children and their place within the kingdom of God. For if children were included in the vineyard or kingdom of God in the Old Testament, as indicated by their receiving the sign and seal of circumcision, where do we find any indication that children were excommunicated from the vineyard or the kingdom of God in the New Testament? God has taken that vineyard and given it to the New Covenant ministers. Rather than being excommunicated from the kingdom of God, dear ones, Christ rather confirms that little children and infants are yet a part of the kingdom of God or the church of God. When he says concerning these infants that he held in his arms and blessed, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such, that is literally for of such ones is the kingdom of God of God. Mark 10:14. And if indeed they were members of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, received the sign and seal of that covenant, albeit only the males, the Lord has indeed broadened to include in baptism females, and the members of that kingdom are Still, the members of that vineyard are still and still do include these little children and the sign of that covenant in the new covenant of baptism applies to these little members within Christ's kingdom as well. In this first verse then we see how the Lord established and settled his church or kingdom in the Old Testament. Furthermore, the Lord loved and cared for his covenanted people by giving to them his ordinances, which in the parable are likely compared to a hedge, a wine vat, and a tower that were there within the, the vineyard. <clears throat> a thorny hedge, dear ones, to protect them from the enemies of their souls. A wine vat which collected the wine to express the joy to be found in using the ordinances to the praise and glory of God. A tower which signified the oversight to be exercised by lawful priests and ministers who genuinely love and watch over the souls of God's people. You see, in like manners, sound doctrine is a hedge to us. Faithful worship is a wine vat of joy to us. And lawful church government is a blessed watchtower to us. Yes, circumcision, the sacrificial system, the feasts and festivals all of the ordinances that God gave to His people in the Old Testament were intended to drive God's people to Christ and away from corrupt doctrine, worship, and government. To the husbandman, 
or to the priestly ministers of that time. God rented out or delegated his authority to administer his ordinances for the protection and care of his vineyard or kingdom. Note that God, dear ones, in this parable did not sell the vineyard to the husbandman. He didn't sell the kingdom of God to the priests and the Old Testament ministers so that he relinquished all rights of ownership or authority to the vineyard, but rather he rented it out, therefore retaining all authority over the vineyard himself. Well, in what way did the Lord go into a far country? As it speaks here of the man in verse 1. If it has particular significance to the meaning of the parable, perhaps this means and refers to God withdrawing his face-to-face revelation to Moses after having settled the state of the church and delegating to the priests and Levites the care of the church, his vineyard, that he withdrew. And he then, having established, planted it, settled it, then he continued to nourish it, to uh, encourage the people of God to come and to use the ordinances, to grow in the means of grace, which were given to them. And when they began to fall away, as we will see uh, in the next few verses, he sent to them other ministers even the prophets, to point out to them where they were backslidden. So that brings us to the second main point then. Lawful authority abused. Look with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. And at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another. And him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. In this next section of the parable, we see how these wicked husbandmen refuse to recognize the absolute authority of the owner over his own vineyard. Again, the issue here is one of authority, and in their case, abused authority. They refuse to recognize God's absolute authority over his kingdom and church. For when the appointed time to collect the rent comes, the husbandmen not only refuse to pay the rent, but they also beat 
and stone and kill the servants of the owner, even to the point, finally, of killing his son, who was the rightful heir to the vineyard. Who are the servants that are sent by the owner? These are the prophets of the Lord who were divinely commissioned by God to testify against the backsliding of the priests and the Levitical ministers in the Old Testament who had abused God's authority by trampling upon the holy ordinances of God. You see, these particular Old Testament ministers had allowed the hedge of doctrine to fall into complete disrepair. Malachi chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. This prophet sent by God says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. These same men, these same leaders, had polluted the wine vat with will worship. In Amos, this particular prophet addresses God's people in Amos chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Notice he doesn't say, I hate and despise my feast days, and I will not smell in my holy or solemn assemblies, but yours. Just as we see shortly that they had invented their own songs and their own instruments in worship, so they apparently had invented their own holy days as well. Verse 22 says, Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Verse 23, Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. And in verse 5 of chapter 6, this prophet says concerning the worship of God's people, he says that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. You see, God is not pleased with man-invented worship. And these particular priests in the Old Testament had allowed their own poisonous will worship to corrupt the wine vat where should have been the pure wine that flowed. That joy in serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord according to his own holy ordinances. And they had also tyrannized the people of God in their government over God's people. 
Listen to Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10. Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They've trampled the vineyard of the Lord underfoot. They've crushed them. They've tyrannized them through their actions, through their bringing various doctrines and worship into God's house and God's vineyard through imposing these upon God's people and through using their authority to merely profit themselves rather than to profit the people of God they had abused his authority. You see, the Lord Jesus speaks very clearly in Matthew chapter 23, though we might have a difficult time going to the Old Testament itself to find specific examples where numerous prophets were put to death by the leaders as Jesus was put to death or as the apostles were put to death by the, the religious leaders of that time. But Jesus makes very clear in Matthew chapter 23 that such was the case. In verse 31, the Lord Jesus says concerning the leaders, the religious leaders in the Old Testament, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up in the measure of your fathers. The Apostle Paul likewise says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. He says, speaking of his countrymen, the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. I think that in Matthew 23, again, if you would like to look at this, I think this is a very interesting passage. Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38, which basically confirmed the interpretation that has been given of this parable thus far. And I think you'll see how the remainder of the parable is confirmed by these two verses. O Jerusalem... Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, speaking to the religious leaders who represented Jerusalem, the capital city. He speaks to the religious leaders there because he speaks of their children later on. He's speaking of the religious leaders. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. See, that's what they had done. That's what, exactly what this parable in Mark 12 says they had done. 
how often I would have gathered thy children, that is, the, the people of Israel themselves. He desired to gather his people within Israel unto himself. But what was the problem? He says, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye, Jerusalem, that is the religious leaders, would not. You would not allow them to. You exercised your tyranny. You abused your authority in such a way as to not allow them to be brought under my wings. You kept them away from me. And the judgment that's pronounced upon them is, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. In this particular act of God continuing to send his servants to Israel, how can one not see the patience and the forbearance of God in sending one prophet after another to call first the ministers of Israel unto himself who had fallen away from him, and then to call the magistrates of Israel, and then to call all the people of Israel unto himself? Beloved, if God shows such patience with those who are obstinate in their backsliding, as were these particular leaders that the Lord here condemns, how much more patient He will be with those who sincerely embrace Him by faith and truly desire to obey Him and yet find themselves so weak at times. How much more patient will God be with us when there is no obstinacy in our heart? When we do not willfully continue to rebel against God's revealed will to us, but we find ourselves falling and stumbling in our weakness, will God not yet pick us up support us? Will He not yet defend us and encourage us and use us for His glory? Absolutely. If He does so in sending His prophets to these who are willfully rebelling against them, we can be assured He will send His Word to us to strengthen and encourage us in our time of weakness. You see, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He speaks of the weakness of ministers in the New Covenant. He calls them basically earthen vessels, clay pots. But within these clay pots, these weak, marred, scratched, perishable clay pots, there is this treasure this treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not to look to the pots. Our faith is not to be in the weak vessel, the earthen vessel. Our faith is in the promise, in the gospel that is declared by the minister. Our faith is in Jesus Christ who makes the promise unto us. And therefore, ministers are never to view 
themselves as in any way having already attained to perfection in doctrine or life. Ministers are to continue to run the race that is set before them. To run and not be weary. To walk and not faint. Ministers are always to acknowledge their sin and error and their absolute dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and for their sanctification. Thus we see from this parable, beloved, that the tyranny and the unlawful authority of unfaithful ministers is manifested in two ways. First, in not acknowledging by thought, word, and deed God's absolute authority over His church. That's the first way tyranny is exercised. Not acknowledging in thought, word, and deed the absolute authority of God over His church. And going beyond, therefore, God's authority by introducing doctrine, worship, or government into the church which is not revealed in God's Word. And the second way in which Unfaithful ministers practice tyranny within the church is in persecuting by word or deed those who faithfully stand for God's revealed truth because these servants that were sent by the owner to collect the rent that was due, they beat, they stoned, they killed, and eventually the son himself the son of the owner, was killed. Both of these characteristics, dear ones, are indeed manifested by the Romish Antichrist who usurps the lawful authority of Christ in imposing the doctrines, worship, and government of man upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and who makes war with the saints of God. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, you see there that the man of sin sets in the church of God. He sets himself there and he acts as if he is God. He usurps God's authority. First way tyranny is exercised. And then in Revelation 13, verses 5 through 7, there it speaks of the man of sin and his his tyranny in persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, the saints, warring against them. Beloved, how ministers and elders are herein warned and cautioned by this parable to use Christ's delegated authority, that is, the keys of the kingdom, only within the limited parameters given in Scripture, rather than the unlimited parameters, as it were, within one's mind. And to use only that authority for the truth of Christ and not against the truth of Christ. And to use only that delegated authority for the spiritual profit and benefit of the church rather than for his own benefit and profit. Of course, from our parable, the, the most extreme and heinous tyranny and abuse of authority against God 
and his vineyard was manifested when the ecclesiastical leaders of Israel conspired together to kill the son of the owner, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the parable seems to infer that these religious leaders knew in their heart of hearts that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. For in Mark chapter 12, 12 verse 7, they say, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And that seems to be confirmed in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, where after the resurrection, the guards who witnessed the earthquake and the opening of the tomb and the angels and who acted as though they were dead when they came to their senses, go to the Pharisees, go to the chief priests, the leaders, and they report what had happened. And they're bribed to keep the words to themselves about the resurrection. And rather, they're told to say that, it, that the disciples came by night and stole the body. They knew what had happened. They knew Jesus in their heart of heart. They knew Jesus was the heir. But you know what the problem was? They wanted control of the vineyard and would not submit to the authority of God who sent the prophets and his own son unto them. They wanted control. They wanted the absolute authority. And dear ones, this is the, this is the essence of unbelief. I want control of my own life. I'm not going to serve anybody by way of helping or by way of listening, learning from anybody else. I will trust in my own works, in my own gifts and graces and knowledge and possessions. My confidence is in no other but myself or what I believe is right. What I establish as a standard for my own life. And so that man becomes the confidence of the unbeliever rather than God being the confidence. See, man fights and fights to the very end to maintain his own autonomy, to maintain his own independence. But when Christ subdues him and captures him, he's in grace and love, man is humbled to see that God is indeed the Master and the Lord of all things. And one of the genuine fruits of salvation, dear ones, is a cheerful submission to Christ's absolute authority over our lives. Acknowledging and living in the light of His absolute ownership of all that we possess and all that happens to us in our lives is a fruit of salvation. It is a fruit of faith that God engenders and, and produces in the life of those who have entrusted their lives to Christ, who have taken hold of Christ by faith. <clears throat> See, those who understand God's absolute sovereignty 
his absolute ownership and his rightful ownership of us and everything that we have. It doesn't become a sledgehammer in their minds by which they are beaten to death, bludgeoned to death. It becomes a great source of comfort for the God who owns us and owns everything intends not our destruction, but intends our good and our welfare and our growth in Jesus Christ. And before looking very quickly at the last main point, there is no room for an anti-Jewish mentality, an anti-Jewish prejudice here as has been manifested in the past by professing Christians. No room for that at all. For although those who put Christ to death are indeed responsible for a very serious and heinous sin, nevertheless, we must never forget that it was our sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die that shameful and agonizing death. Yes, they're responsible, those leaders, those people who cried out, let his blood be upon us. They're responsible for that particular sin. But dear ones, we cannot excuse ourselves from responsibility for Christ's death because it was our sin that sent him there. It was our rebellion against his authority in our lives that put the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And it was His love for His elect people that led Him willingly to submit to that death. You know, how we are abased and at the same time exalted as we consider the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ it humbles us for our sin. That it was our sin that sent the Lord there. And yet it raises us up to rejoice in all that the Lord has brought about because He is sovereign. He used that which was perhaps the most heinous sin in all of history to glorify Himself and to secure eternal peace and happiness for His people. Do you not think He can use, therefore, everything in your life to bring Him glory and to secure your peace and joy while here upon the earth? Absolutely. The last main point is abused authority judged. In Mark chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him but feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them and they left him and went their way. 
Here the Lord indicates the judgment that will befall those wicked, tyrannical leaders of Israel. He will destroy them and will delegate his authority to other ministers, namely Christian ministers, to whom the Lord will give the care and the protection of his precious vineyard, his church. Because the Lord had predicted in the parable that the son would be killed, he wanted to make clear that it would be the very same son that was killed that would be the one who would bring judgment upon them. Rather than having the son in the parable raised from the dead, therefore, he goes into the second very brief parable to indicate this very point, that it would be him, the very one who was the chief cornerstone of God's temple, God's house, would be the one who would fall upon them and crush them into powder. You see, the Lord calls again these these religious leaders of that time. In this particular parable, he refers to them as builders. Just as the Apostle Paul calls himself and all other minister, ministers builders with, of God's house. He says that we are, we are laying the foundation. There's no other foundation that can be laid other than Christ. And we are building upon that particular foundation. And so, in this particular case, these builders, the problem with these builders is not that they used wood, hay, and stubble. The problem with these builders was that they rejected the foundation. They rejected Christ, the cornerstone, who is the head of the church. And therefore, the prophecy from Psalm 118, verse 22, was that the very stone that was rejected by them would become the chief cornerstone. They would fall upon him in unbelief, and he would fall upon them in crushing them to pieces. Remember what Matthew chapter 23, the Lord said, the judgment, your house is left to you desolate. Not only eternal condemnation, but also a forewarning of, of judgment that was to come, which occurred in 70 AD in the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. I want to leave you with this, dear ones. Let us not be proud in our own conceits as if if we as ministers fall into the same sins as those ministers that we will not likewise incur the same judgment. And let us not be lulled into some kind of self-sufficiency, thinking that we can, as a church, look down our noses at whether it's the Jews 
or at other people. You see, the problem, the reason that the Jews were taken out, the branches were taken out of the olive tree, the natural branches, was due to their unbelief and their pride. And Paul says in Romans chapter 11, the same thing will happen to you. If you're proud and conceited as well. You see, these truths ought not to make us proud. They ought to make us very humble before the Lord because it is His church. And we are merely His ministers and His servants. God, help us, therefore, to always serve Him with that in mind. And whether we're ministers serving the Lord, whether we are working in the home and homeschooling our children, let us do so unto the Lord. Whether we are working in other types of of vocations, let us do so unto the Lord, recognizing He is the one who has given us our calling. Let us do all, therefore, to God who is our absolute sovereign. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, As human beings, we are so inclined as the people who came to Jesus and spoke of how horrid those must have been upon whom the wall fell. They must have been greater sinners than most. And the Lord Jesus said to those, unless ye repent, ye will all likewise perish. And Father, we today have heard message sobering message of judgment with regard to our own inclination to backslide, to tyrannize, to disbelieve, to be proud. Father, we pray that we would hear the word of the Lord to us, that we do not stand by our merit. We stand by the grace of God. And Father, if we fall into that type of backsliding, we can expect the judgment of God as well. We pray, Father, that Thou would cast us, therefore, upon the stone to build our lives upon that firm foundation. Not to stumble upon the stone in unbelief, but to build upon the stone in faith. Upon the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, to build our life. That, Father, the storms of life, the winds that come may not shake it, for it is secure. It is firmly founded upon that foundation. We thank Thee, our Father, for our Savior and all who place their faith in Him. Thy Word says and promises they will not be disappointed. We are thankful, our Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.